At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Alan Weston, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, will be with us. Uh, he wants to be the next President of the United States. He, just hasn't, he hasn't formally admitted it yet, but I think he will. Maybe today. We'll see what happens. Uh, meanwhile, we'll take your calls. And you can write me, briankillme.com. Uh, and always, you can do that 24 hours a day when you have to listen to the show. Sometimes people want to tape it. Sometimes people want to get on the podcast. That is your option. We have a lot to discuss. We also have another balloon over this country. Could it be the notorious bottle cap balloon brigade? The 12-year-olds that had an F-16, uh, I guess, scrambled to take it out last time. Could they be striking again? We'll have to see. It's a hobby club, and uh, they've been a problem for quite some time. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. What, in fact, is his income from his artwork? We want to know how much money he's made from the artwork and who the buyers are. That's the most important part, who the buyers of this artwork are. We fear uh, they're the same ones that were laundering the money into the LLCs, uh, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. It could be because we don't know how much his art goes for. We're talking Hunter, and we don't know who's buying it. Baby mama drama. A tone-deaf, arrogant Hunter Biden appears in front of an Arkansas judge to plead down his child support payments for a four-year-old girl he won't acknowledge. His lawyers get a cold reception from the judge. How this financial disclosure could increase the heat on his family. Number two. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent. And that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. But we know that more action needs to be taken. So it has to be legislative action. Oh. KJP, signs are ominous that the blitz of the border is just weeks away as illegals line up for a surge like we have never seen before. This is the manhunt continues for a killer here illegally who just murdered five in a drunken rage and then escaped. Uh, Next. Number one. President Biden called all four congressional leaders on Monday and invited them to a meeting next Tuesday here at the White House to discuss the debt limit. This new alert from the Treasury Department is only adding to the pressure to reach a resolution quickly. Deadline is a red line, it seems, and suddenly the White House will meet with the Republicans to avoid defaulting on our debt around June 1st. Other red lights, uh, flashing lights on the economy, too. We'll we'll discuss it. So this is what happened. Uh, Yesterday they announced, Janet Yellen says, receipts are down. That means people aren't earning as much, paying as much taxes, even though this president has jacked up taxes everywhere. So they said, Janet Yellen looked at the receipts and said, wait a second, I think we're going to hit the debt ceiling a lot sooner than I thought. How about June 1st? At which time the red light, the red alarm went off and suddenly Joe Biden breaks the silence and contacted Kevin McCarthy, Hakeem Jeffries and uh, Chuck Schumer. And we'll see Mitch McConnell. Everyone, all the principals are going to go to the White House on May 9th and they're going to try to work something out. The problem is the president put himself into a corner. Why? He said, I'm not dealing on the debt ceiling because these are bills already spent. But the debt ceiling is in existence in order to debate how we stay underneath that ceiling, raise it but use it as an opportunity to reform. 
Um, Americans know the Congress works best on a deadline. This is a deadline. This is a ceiling. This is a chance to go in and cut. Instead, we are spending. I think this president's going to spend $6 trillion this year. We're bringing in $3.5 trillion. That's in his budget. So come on. You don't even, it's not even on the auspices of a balanced budget. Senator John Kennedy on the sudden change from the president. Cut one. That's a good thing. Yeah, sure, it's progress. I mean, President Biden has said repeatedly, I'm not going to uh, even talk, negotiate and talk about um, a, a debt ceiling increase. Uh, and I won't agree to any conditions. And that's just unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, John Kennedy in a quiet moment. Uh, no puns thrown out there. Finally. But it doesn't mean that when they get together, Biden's not going to open up by saying, by the way, we will not do anything prior to the raising of the debt ceiling. Raise it first, then we'll talk. But already they're looking at the 230-page proposal that the House passed and saying, oh, they want to cut veterans' benefits. They want to uh, cut Medicare or Social Security. No, they talked about things that need to be looked at, but no one wants to cut veterans' benefits. But if you used to want to score political points and have CNN and MSNBC parrot what you're saying, you come out and say something like that. Here's Britt Hume, cut five. This is what you call making peace with reality. A lot of the coverage and commentary I've seen lately seems to ignore the fact that the ball is no longer in Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans' court. It's in the Democrats in the Senate and the White House's court because McCarthy's right. The House did pass an extension of the debt limit. So now it's up to the Senate. And the Senate needs 60, in the Senate they're going to need 60 votes, which means they need Republican votes to pass something. Uh, until then, they're, they really don't have a leg to stand on in arguing that, that, that it's the House Republicans who are being reckless on this. Uh, so true. So we'll see where it goes. If he goes in and just deals, you pledge to do this, it's got to be more than a handshake deal. And then he's got to go back and the House has got to sell it to their right. And Kevin McCarthy won them over in his sincerity. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. All the pressure went back on him. I was reminded that John Boehner lost pressure, uh, lost power because he wanted to do a debt ceiling raise unconditional. But when he went to the House, he could not get the Freedom Caucus to go along. So when he dealt with Barack Obama. He really had no power. He couldn't even say, I can, I can deliver my party. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about flashing red light. You know, no one's asked me to run a bank. Probably don't want to serve on a bank board. You probably won't ask. But I have noticed that the irresponsibility of these bank boards as well as these bank presidents and the oversight, nobody's doing their job, led to the second biggest bank failure ever. And it happened at First Republic, bought by J.P. Morgan. They they pay $10.6 billion. They take over uh, all these 80 branches in eight states. They'll take $173 billion in loans, $92 billion in uh, deposits. I'm sure it'll work out. But then what bothers me is J.P. Morgan also laid off 3,000 people. Wait a second. You just bought all these banks. All these banks. You just expanded your portfolio. You really have to lay off 3,000 people? At the same time, the Fed says it looks like they're going to raise rates. All right, so the rates go up. Inflation stays the same. Another bank mid-bank failure Excuse me if, you're, I'm, if, if I'm wondering what really is going on here. So what the White House says, the NFIB, Vice President of Federal Government Relations, says if the White House wants to help small business, they'll immediately abandon their plan to raise small business taxes. And this is the fact is that as big business and big banks struggle, so do small businesses. And this, this <clears throat> administration doesn't seem to understand the connection. 
Just to finish, small business continues to face economic headwinds and expectations for better business conditions six months from now, are hovering near historic lows. What did President Trump do that was so effective? This this tax reform actually did a favor for small business. 80% of all our businesses are small businesses. That's why the economy thrived. Pandemic hit, spending got kicked in, and now Trump is looked at as a big spender. Yeah, he could have cut more, got it. But remember, Congress gives him the budget. He wanted more for the wall. He got the budget he got. He went back and signed a couple of omnibuses that were jammed down his throat. But the bulk of the spending money was the pandemic. That is a huge thing. Now I have Republicans even blaming Trump as a big spender. That, to me, is not accurate at all. But he did raise the debt ceiling with absolutely uh, no problem. He says, we got to let's raise debt ceiling. Let's not make it this dramatic. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I'll have more on this. Talk about this immigration disaster and talk about Hunter Biden. Why this is more than just a problem with a kid out of wedlock for the family and especially for him. His judgment continues to be absolutely awful. His instincts terrible. His lawyers ridiculous, but expensive. When we come back, the racism, the racism charge from the mayor of New York to the governor of Texas. That story with Alan West next. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Now, all five victims in this case are from Honduras. The suspect is from Mexico. In a short statement, Governor Greg Abbott saying the state of Texas will provide some of the reward money and additional resources. He chose not to say anything about the victims, not even naming them, calling them, quote, five illegal immigrants. So that is the victims, uh, five illegal immigrants, and the killer is an illegal immigrant deported five times dating back to 2007. And I'm talking about the shooter of that crime, uh, that, that ugly uh, shooting. They want to talk about the gun. They want to talk about the rifle, but they want to talk about these guys being here illegally. Uh, the answer is no. And you know who I'm, I'm talking about? This illegal immigrant was tossed out. His name is Francisco Orapiza, and he was tossed out of the country in March 29, 2009. In September of 2009, January 2012, and July of 2016. And now he's home in a house, shooting his gun off next door. When he gets asked by neighbors, to, they have, we have little kids, can you stop shooting your gun? They say, we have no other choice but to call the cops. He says, yeah, he has a choice. He walks over and just kills everyone possible. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, American Constitutional Rights Union Executive, joins us right now. Texas, uh, of course, resident. Colonel, your reaction to the manhunt on right now? 
Well, it's good to be with you, Brian. I was down in Kenny County, which is uh, Brackenville, Texas, right along the border this past weekend, and we got the news about uh, that shooting, which occurred just north of uh, northeast of Houston. And talking to the law enforcement agents there, they they, they said uh, this guy's already back in Mexico by Saturday morning because obviously he knows the pipeline since he's been back and forth uh, four times. So if they were to capture him in the state of Texas, I'd be very surprised now uh, with this amount of time that has gone past uh, since the shooting occurred about Friday of midnight last week. And it just goes to show again how bad things are here in Texas with the border, that you have someone that is here in the country illegally, been deported four times, and how is that person able to get a semi-automatic rifle? Uh, that's the question that I want to know. Uh, and yes, it's sad and it's tragic that that family of five from Honduras had to lose their lives, but again, it is an indicator of the serious problem we have with illegal immigration here uh, in the state of Texas and also across the United States. So we now have 90,000 migrants cross the border in 10 days, panic over Title 42 uh, as it's about to evaporate in two weeks. So over uh, uh, over 73,000 have crossed the southern border in the last 10 days, as I mentioned. They admitted to further 17,000 illegal gotaways. Uh, avoided detection, which means you see them, you just can't find them, and enter the country. Imagine how many we didn't see, and you know how the thick it is. It's so easy to see that that number can possibly be accurate. We already have 2.3 million million plus who came last year, the new record. We have 1.2 already this year. Does this this administration know how much trouble they are causing our nation by not closing our borders? Of course they know, but they don't care. Uh, Secretary Mayorgas knows, but he does not care. You saw his interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press this weekend, how he didn't want to make any comment about what happened in uh, in Cleveland, Texas, San Jacinto County, with that murder of a family of five. They know exactly what's going on. They know what Title 42 is going to mean. And this whole thing about activating reservists, that's just another Band-Aid on a sucking chest wound, and it really is just a photo op. You talk to the people on the ground like I did last week, and they They know that they're going to be overrun and overwhelmed. They already are when they see all of these people pouring across the border because that means more Border Patrol agents going toward these ports of entry to do processing, and that means everything's going to be wide open. And when you want to talk about gotaways, Brian, I I had three gotaways on me this past Saturday down in Kenny County. I saw three illegal immigrants come out of the brush, run across the highway, and before myself and the uh, sheriff's deputy I was riding along, with, could get out of the vehicle. They had already gotten back into the brush and they had disappeared. And there's no aerial surveillance that we could put up there to find them. So I saw three gotaways myself. Unbelievable that this is taking place. So the numbers are stunning. It's an epic fail for the vice president, for the president, for Mayorkas, for everybody. Uh, Here is what KJP actually said with a straight face. Cut 10. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent, and that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. But we know that more action needs to be taken, so it has to be legislative action. We're going to continue to call Congress. What is she talking about? Nothing's down 90 percent. 
Yeah, I have no idea. As a matter of fact, you have Chinese illegal immigrants up by, you know, I think 250, 300% or more uh, in the past year. So everything is increasing, and you just gave the numbers. I mean, we're talking about since the Biden administration came to uh, on board, five to six to seven million uh, coming across the border illegally, uh, close to 1.3 million of them being gotaways, and we have no idea who they are or where they are. And what just happened in Cleveland, Texas, is just an indicator that you have someone that had come across this border four times, been deported four times, somehow gets an AK, I mean, an AR-15, and guns down a family of five. That's how bad the situation is here in Texas and across the country. So Mick Mulvaney, who is OMB director, Congressman Freedom Caucus member, understands this whole thing, said this, and also spent a lot of time at the podium in the previous administration, said this about what KJP just said, cut 11. The press is doing, the media is doing a disservice to the country when they allow those types of answers to be given without pushing back. I do think it's noteworthy uh, that every time the White House wants to do something, they don't need Congress. But when there's something they don't want to do, they say, oh, well, we're waiting on Congress, which is exactly what's happening here. So, look, I don't think Karen Jean-Pierre has much credibility. But again, I I, I pay attention. Uh, And it's a shame that we don't have an active media sort of pushing back when she says things that are absurd as that, because that's just that's just not right. Yeah, I mean, just to say that, and people don't say anything, they don't, they don't even want to follow up on immigration. It's, uh, but you know when, when the Haitians got caught under the bridge? That became yeah. a story that every network picked up. They say this story is going to, is going to quadruple that. So it's going to, the, the president's about to be caught big time, let alone the 85,000 unaccompanied minors that we have just lost track of and the tens of thousands that are indentured servitude, not going to school, mm-hmm. sponsor got them just to do work, uh, and cartels benefit from their, from their labor in our country. So this has happened under Joe Biden. And just compare it. Trump had a couple of weeks where they had child separate, family separation because they wanted to make sure these are the right family members. And when you bring a kid here illegally, the kid gets to stay, the family goes back. They amended that. They got DNA kits and they changed it. They're still harping on those moments. These moments are happening yeah. every day now, uh, multiple times a day. We lost kids and nobody seems to bring it up. Yeah, I mean, where is AOC with the fake tears and, and the protests that she was doing down here on the border? Uh, where was she making comment about what we heard from the whistleblower at HHS about this indentured servitude of children? Uh, the hypocrisy is laughable. And I have to agree with Mick Mulvaney. Uh, when you look at Afghanistan, uh, the Biden administration said, hey, look, this is what the Trump administration had gotten started, oh. and, and we had nothing else to do and but to, uh, you know— get out of Afghanistan and turn it back over to the Taliban. But then when you look at the border, uh, we had to change that policy. Uh, we, we had to move away from the Trump policies and go to an open border. So they can't have it both ways. But when you have a complicit and a compliant media that we have, and you saw that at the White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner, uh, a foreign media, they're going to continue to try to allow them to get away with it. And that's what why he put out a three-minute video last week mm. to announce his uh, re-election. You think it's a good move for Trump to go on CNN for a town hall? Hey, look, sometimes you got to go in the back door of the enemy and, uh, and you know, put up a, a fight against them. I, I think Vivek Ramaswamy really embarrassed Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. And so I think that we need to do more where yeah. we go behind enemy lines. I, I do. The, the I, I, think, I think it's really good for him. they got to treat him like a human being or he's not coming back. 
Just treat them. Just add tough questions, but be fair. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back. Uh, with us right now is, and by the way, thanks so much for joining us on this Tuesday, the 48th Vice President of the United States, uh, Mike Pence, who in a matter of weeks is more than likely going to be declaring his candidacy for the presidency of this the GOP nomination. Mr. Vice President, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, great to be back, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first off, there's so much going on right now. I, I don't know yeah. where to start. Uh, first off, on the economy, it looks like the Fed's going to raise rates despite the fact that our second biggest bank collapse just took place and J.P. Morgan Chase just did the purchase. Your thoughts? Yeah, second biggest ever in history, third bank failure in as many months. It is a testament to the failed economic policies of the Biden administration, and it's why we need change in America in 18 months. I mean, look, you can't borrow and spend and bail your way back to a growing economy. But from the outset of this administration, that's exactly what they've been trying to do. They've thrown tax increases on top of that. Uh, But look, this latest, you know, this latest bank rescue is just one more bank bailout. And Brian, you and I have known each other a long time. I was in Congress during the Wall Street bailout. I helped lead the charge against it. We bailouts are not the answer in a free market economy. We've got to let let the market ebb and flow and hold people accountable. But more than anything else, I just I see it all as an indictment. Uh, of the economic well, policies of this administration. But, but you know, this, but Mr. Uh, Vice President, how is inflation it? that's hurting families and, and so, institutions. So you think it's inflation along with the spending. Yeah. So the inflation stays high. Interest rates go up to try to tame the inflation. And the banks are going, right. uh-oh, I'm, I'm upside down in this. But they should be knowing this. So I, it's the hard thing with conservatives especially. You pride themselves on letting business be business. And you don't want to put your hand on the till. But you just count on people being responsible. I mean, these banks had to know they were upside down. They know where the interest rates are trending. They know inflation is not transitory. They all picked that up already. It's been two years now. So how do they just sit there and wait for an implosion? Well, everybody I've talked to have said that, you know, because of – the highest inflation in 40 years, Brian, that we're likely headed to a recession. I was talking, I was out in Utah the other day, I was talking to some people very involved in real estate out there. They said real estate out that way is already in a recession, has been for several Commercial months. Commercial or residential? But look, come on, let, let's, uh, let, let's recognize the fact that, look, the inflation took off like a jackrabbit when Joe Biden takes office and the Democrats in the House and Senate pass on a party line vote. trillion in completely unnecessary spending. That's what lit the pilot light on this inflation. And the economy was getting back on its feet uh, in in the wake of COVID. It really was, Brian. And then then this this administration comes in, does what Democrats always do, and that is uh, spend money we don't have and that we don't need to spend. Uh, And uh, and they set us – they set in motion – which is the war on energy. Let's not leave that out. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the Biden administration has declared a war on energy from go, and uh, that drove up gasoline prices through the roof in their first year in office. They leveled off a little bit, but still way too high. And and all of that is creating the conditions where you're seeing these financial institutions fail. I believe it. But all, all roads lead back to the Biden administration. Well, Mr. Vice President, let me ask you in this scenario. So you see these people yeah. that put their money in First Republic Bank. 
And they're saying to themselves, wait a second, I'm seeing the, you know, 49% of the people have withdrawn. They're, they're starting to believe this is going to collapse. And then when it's yeah. about to collapse, the government comes in and forces this sale. The FDIC takes over and they, and they right. offer it up and J.P. Morgan Chase takes it for uh, $10.6 billion. They take $173 billion in loans and $92 billion in deposits. So if we're a free market laissez-faire approach, it, do you let that bank collapse – and let these people lose their money. And that's the whole thing. And or do you, if that's free market. But if people lose their money, you say to yourself, where was the oversight? Why couldn't you step in? Rokahana says, just back it up, fix it, get these people their money back. Other free marketers say, I got a problem with that. Where do you stand? Well, look, there's an old rule in economics. I heard long ago from my mentor, Jack Kemp. He said, what you subsidize, you get more of. What you tax, you get less of. I mean, we are subsidizing irresponsible behavior in the marketplace every time we do a bailout. It's, it's just a fact. And there are alternatives to this. Look, the FDIC, you know, essentially guaranteed $13 billion uh, to make that deal happen with First Republic and J.P. Morgan. And uh, and that's that's $13 billion. They say, well, it comes from fees on banks. And so, but look, it, it comes from the American people. And I think at the end of the day, there are, just like in the savings and loan crisis, which happened a thousand years ago, around 1980, they did, they did a workout uh, institution by institution. Um, they, you know, they, they protected, uh, you know, account holders and, and saw America through that for pennies on the dollar that we did. In, in the Wall Street bailout or what they're doing now. I'm, my concern as a, as a free market conservative is just the more of these bailouts that right. just happen as soon as you see a major institution collapse, the more we say there are, there are some banks that are too big to fail, uh, the more likely it is that more will happen. But also there's going to be some banks out there that are too small to save. It's so interesting uh, because there's a couple of things going on. You know, by the way, all that TARP money got paid back, so it ended up being a decent investment. Nobody knew what to do. And we knew what a colossal failure it was. A lot of those policies were in place during the Clinton administration when they were, well, they were these banks were incentivized to give people unqualified uh, loans uh, for interest rates that were floating and for deposits that didn't really have to happen and for houses they couldn't afford. So we watched the ripple effect around the country, around the world, and then government stepped in. So when you look at right. the fact that, for example, we don't know the difference would happen with First Republic. But with uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, we had the CEO there and other executives cashing out right before the whole thing collapsed. And we had the CEO right. sitting on the San Francisco board on oversight. And I'm saying to myself, yeah. how does this – it's almost as if they're laughing at the American consumer. They're saying Americans are such morons. We could do anything we want. They still have their money. Are you for a clawback for getting those – for those sell-offs right before the collapse and maybe the incentives and bonuses that were issued? Well, well I'm, I'm for that a whole lot more than I am for bailouts. <laughs> let, you know, let, let the top executives walk out the door while the ship is sinking uh, and then stick taxpayers with the bill. But uh, look, it, 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 you know, look, that bank as well also. Again, you know, the comment you just made a few minutes ago is very – I hope your listeners – know uh, how really bright and insightful Brian Kilmeade is because it's government intervention that set into motion the mortgage crisis to begin with. You're a thousand percent right. And there's also an argument that SVB on the West Coast 
was taking advantage of all this green money and these climate change bills coming out of Washington and kind of betting on all these very speculative, you know, you know, business deals that are built on on green energy. And that combined with higher interest rates is what brought them down. But we, we just ought to let we ought to let business do business. I believe in limited government. We ought to let the free market thrive and free enterprise thrive. That. That's how we created the most prosperous nation on earth. So June 1st, Janet Yellen says, I looked at the receipts. Tax receipts are down. It looks like we're going to hit the debt ceiling of over $30 trillion. And now Kevin McCarthy, who passed through the House a deal that would be – you want to raise the debt ceiling? Passed this package, 340 pages. Now all of a sudden the president called up and said all the leaders report to the White House May 9th. How how would you run that meeting? And would you agree to some type of package – or would you do what Donald Trump did and you did and say, just raise the debt ceiling? This is money that is owed. We have to pay our bills. Well, look, first off, let me let me commend uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans. They got a four seat majority. They found a way uh, to get a bill that makes a down payment on fiscal responsibility pass and raises the debt ceiling. And uh that is commendable. And as I talked to members of Congress going into that vote, not everybody liked every bit of it, right? But I said, look, the Biden administration made it clear until the House Republicans passed a bill, Joe Biden was just going to fold his arms and and say, uh, I'm not doing anything. So essentially, House Republicans have put Kevin McCarthy at the table. I think he's got to stand firm with a $32 trillion national debt. He's got to stand firm for these initial steps back toward fiscal responsibility. It's a modest beginning. But it's an important beginning, and uh, right. and I, I think Kevin's got all the leverage on his side, uh, and I think at the end of the day, the fact that the president called him yesterday uh, signals that the stand that Republicans are taking uh, is beginning to carry the day. You know, it's uh, uh, the one thing that I think unfair attacks from Republican to Republican, as people saying, well, Donald Trump didn't finish the wall, and there was so much uh, – there was spending. You guys added to the deficit. Well, that's true to a respect. But in the end, it was Congress adding money during the pandemic to tell everyone to go home for two and a half weeks. And when you guys asked for money, Congress actually added more to it. Also, it was the Republican House that didn't give you money for the wall. And then ultimately, you guys repurposed money from the Defense Department under much criticism to do it. So when Republicans are criticizing that, I personally think that's unfair. Well, look, I, I look at the spending record of the Trump-Pence administration, and I would tell you, in the early going, we had a lot of catching up to do on military spending. It essentially had been flatlined, and there had been reckless budget cuts uh, to our defense spending during the eight years of the Obama administration. So we had to make historic investments in our military, uh, which uh, the American people understand more today with with war in Eastern Europe and, and China menacing in the Asia Pacific. And then, and frankly, in COVID, of course, Congress spent more than we asked. But in my judgment, you know, this is what government is for when the roof falls in, when a hundred year pandemic hits, that's when you need to be there for families and businesses and create a backstop. But I'll be the first to stipulate that, that in the, in the, in between those things, Brian, uh, we didn't do as good a job as we should reining in federal spending. And as I've said many times, I I believe that. So time you think you could have done a better job? I, I think we could have done a better job on domestic spending. And I also believe 
that we could have done a better job engaging the American public on the need for common sense and compassionate reform of entitlements like Social Security and Medicare. I think we could we could preserve that program for everyone that's in it, for anyone that's that's going to retire in 25 years, but for right. Americans under the age of 40. Uh, I thought we should have started that conversation. We didn't. Uh, but whatever the future holds right. for me and my family, we'll we'll be in that discussion because our our kids and grandkids deserve better. Well, that's interesting. So you did say we, and you might have. That's an interesting approach to say things you would be doing different. Um, so I, everybody knows you can't talk in detail about it, but you went behind closed doors with this uh, this Jack Smith, who's been uh, very uh, very dogged in doing his investigation into January six, as well as the Mar-a-Lago papers. One of the things that Newsweek speculated that would be damning on Donald Trump is a passage in your book when you recount that Donald Trump looked at you when he was, he was trying to get you to say uh, to not declare and certify the election. You said, I have no choice. And he said, the problem with you, Mike, is you're too honest. Could you tell me if that line was played back to you behind closed doors? And did I get that right? Is that, is that how that conversation went? That's pretty much how the conversation went, but I, I would tell you I'm really not at liberty to talk about what what took place, uh, you know, in the in the proceedings um, you know, over the over the past week. But uh, what I can tell you is that, that people can be confident uh, that the story that I have told to you, the story that I have told in innumerable interviews, and of course in the pages of my memoir, is the same story that I would tell in that setting. And uh, it's it's a truth, and and, uh, and I truly do believe, at the end of the day, the, people, the American people can judge those facts for themselves. But I have to tell you something, Brian. As I travel around the country, know, gosh, nobody in the cares. last week I was in Iowa, and Utah, and North Carolina. It, nobody's talking about this I stuff. Agree. I mean, the Biden administration has weakened America at home and abroad. Everywhere I go. Uh, the American people and Republicans especially are focused on the future and how we solve these problems. And, so, and having said that, Mr. Vice President, I agree with you because I get to travel a lot and talk to people too, uh, not yeah. like you because you're just fresh off a book tour. But were you surprised that the former president opened up his rally with January 6th? Yeah, I, I, I didn't see the rally, so I can't say what, whether I was surprised or, or not surprised. But um, look, it, it's free country. Uh, the president and I have a strong difference of opinion about my duties and what the Constitution required of me that day. But as I've said many times, I'll, I'll always believe that by God's grace that we did our duty that day uh, to support and defend the Constitution and uh, ensure the peaceful transfer of power. So uh, Glenn Youngkin announced yesterday he's not getting in the race. Mike, Mike Pompeo mm-hmm. two weeks ago said he's not getting in the race. They were both in single digits. Uh, Tim Scott's about to get in May 22nd. You're in single digits. Nikki Haley's in single digits. Um, Tim Scott's in single digits. Will that would the polling affect your decision as the former president and your running mate has a commanding lead in these polls? He's over 50 percent. Will that affect your decision? Well, I, what I can tell you is I don't have anything to announce today, but um, the the way Karen and I have always made decisions over the last 20 years during my years in Congress, my years as governor, my years as vice president is just simply out of a sense of calling. And uh, I must tell you, as we look at the challenges facing America today and uh, the failed policies of this administration, I uh, we're reflecting very deeply on what role we might play in mm-hmm 
helping to turn this country around. And I, I promise as soon as we have something to announce, Brian, I'll be I'll be right back on the Brian Kill Me show to talk about it. No, I'd be honored. And I just know you'd be a force and a great voice out there. And lastly, uh, I'm, I Thank know you, where man. you are. You're solid pro-life. And, but America isn't. It seems that they, if they had their choice, uh, over 60% would keep Roe v. Wade intact. Do you have to give in to a 15-week ban in order to win over the country and win an election? Well, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. Thanks, thanks for acknowledging that. We've known each other a long time. I, I think, uh, I think the the decision by the Supreme Court of the United States, um, now almost a year ago, gave the American people a new beginning for life. It returned this question to the states and to the American people. And uh, uh, I can tell you, for the rest of my life. Um, uh, I'll be working to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American mm-hmm. law. I, I'll support efforts. I said about a week ago that if I ever had any duties yeah. in Washington D.C., I'd certainly support a 15-week okay. ban. Uh, but I've, I've supported measures all around the country. Gotcha. Just- Thanks, Mr. Vice President. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. I went real long with Mr. Vice President. That was that's a hard break, so I apologize. But you understand, he'd be open to 15 weeks, even though he's personally zero. So that's just it. The one thing that Ron DeSantis, when he signed into law with Florida, says six weeks. Uh, people, uh, I know most Republicans, everybody who's pro-life says it's great. But if the country says no and you can't get elected because of it, is it worth it? What is it going to take to win without giving up your values? That's the biggest question these Republican candidates have, for the most part. I mean, I don't think, uh, if you look at the leading candidates, I don't think any of them, Mike Pence is a huge problem with that. I think Ron DeSantis is a problem. The others would probably give. Governor News kind of would, is already kind of given in on that to, to begin with. But you don't want any federal ban. That's the whole point of Roe v. Wade. They said... I'm not weighing in on it by abortion. I'm saying it shouldn't be a federal decision. It's not in the Constitution. Make your own decision, states. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com or to any of my books to put our history in perspective, and I can sign them and get them out for Mother's Day. Every mom wants a history book. Am I right? Allison's nodding. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Big hour coming your way. We'll do a simulcast on FBN. You'll finally see what I look like. Stuart Varney will be putting me on and disagreeing with me. We had a little bit of brawl yesterday over the banking system. And the collapse of the second biggest bank uh, in our history, pretty big news. And then we'll have Liz Peake go inside what is going on with the economy, as well as the debt ceiling. And George P. Bush, we're lucky enough to have him in studio. If you have Fox Nation, you're recognizing him. George P. Bush is here. So before we get to the former land commissioner of Texas, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. What, in fact, is his income from his artwork? We want to know how much money he's made from the artwork and who the buyers are. That's the most important part. 
who the buyers of this artwork are. We fear uh, they're the same ones that were laundering the money into the LLCs, uh, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. And the weird thing is, he doesn't remember. What does this guy remember? He doesn't remember if the laptop was his, but Hunter Biden does not remember who bought his and how much he bought his uh, artwork for. The baby mama drama. A tone-deaf, arrogant Hunter Biden appears in court with his big, all his attorneys, an Arkansas judge, uh, really berates them and says, you know what, make the support payments for your four-year-old girl you had out of wedlock. His lawyers get a cold reception, and now they have to produce financial factors to see why he should not be paying as much as he's paying in child support. Number two, when it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent, and that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. But we know that more action needs to be taken, so it has to be legislative action. Blatantly not true. KGP. KJP. Talking about 90% decrease at the border. Signs are ominous. This is going to be a blitz of the border like we've never seen before as Title 42 is about to evaporate. There's also a manhunt now for an illegal alien that killed five in a drunken rage. That's going through Texas at this moment. We'll discuss that with George P. Number one, President Biden called all four congressional leaders on Monday and invited them to a meeting next Tuesday here at the White House to discuss the debt limit. This new alert from the Treasury Department is only adding to the pressure to reach a resolution quickly. Deadline is a red line, it seems, and suddenly the White House will meet with Republicans to avoid defaulting on our debt. It will be June 1st, the default day, May 9th, the meeting day. Other red lights are flashing on the economy. Let's discuss it. Uh, George P. Bush, we always love when you come by. He's got uh, you got the military background. You have the, uh, the uh, understanding of what's going on at the border in Texas and all, know what it's like to be in a free state. George, great to see you. Great to be with you. So first off, you, you were not able to become the next attorney general. What do you tell everybody what you're doing now? So I'm back to lawyering in my uh, private practice, uh, dealing with a variety of issues for some great clients. So my my client is a little different. It's no longer on a daily basis the great people of Texas. It's right. specific folks that bring me on. But also here to announce, Brian, that I'm launching a new political action committee focused on downsizing the size and scope of our federal government, focused on getting rid of red tape, backing fearless and courageous candidates, and also current elected officials, whether that be with the debt ceiling discussion that we're seeing in D.C. in the coming weeks or – in the future discussions for in the halls of power that we need as a future generation of Americans to create more of a sustainable government that's more responsive to the people. Where do you get your expertise to find out where the bloat is? So we're going to bring together a great board of advisors, and we're going to talk to public policy officials. I'm going to leverage my network, my background in public service, whether mm-hmm. that be in the military. Which you saw in Texas, up close and personal. Or statewide, where we actually do things right in Texas. In fact, coming into this budget cycle – we had a surplus of close to $30 billion. Not many, particularly blue states, have that type. In fact, when I traveled to Chicago or here in New York, people say, what's a rainy day fund? I've never heard of that before. Uh, because right. of fiscal conservatism, it allows states like Texas and I'll even dare say Florida uh, attract so much business and so much population. And when you look at people moving with their feet, Texas continues to be a, a great story of uh, the American opportunity I mean, you, you see it right now. There's no county. Out of the top five counties that have lost people over the last five years, three are New York and two are California. Number one is Los Angeles. And what do they have? Huge homeless, high taxes, high, high crime. And the thing is, I don't think that really amount to, describes Texas. Although Austin's got some homeless. You, you've described, Austin's a bit of a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, of, a, of a square peg in a round hole. That's right. You know, so our, our large cities are actually controlled by big blue city mayors uh, that can't, 
continue a lot of the same liberal progressive policies that you see here in, in New York, San Francisco and others. And you would think that we would learn from those experiences, those experiments, whether that's public camping and for the homelessness and uh, refusal of our DAs, for example, in Travis County to prosecute narcotics crimes um, that are backed by George Soros Capital. Part of my effort at Restore Trust and partnership with uh, the Attorney General in Virginia, General Miar, is a fantastic uh, conservative. We'll be targeting these Soros-backed DA races, including three in Texas, where we're going to push back and send a clear message that this is our state. But it's very hard with the DA in cities because you don't have that Republican base to draw from, correct? Absolutely. And that's why you guys just bailed out of that for the most part, your party. Totally. And that's why we got to recruit candidates, give them financial backing, raise awareness around the correlation between weak prosecution and high crime, which is scaring businesses and scaring families from raising their families in in even blue areas of Texas. So I'm sure you know that Janet Yellen looked at the receipts and said we're, we're running short on money a lot quicker than I thought. June 1st, she says, technically, we hit the debt ceiling. Immediately, the president backed off his original statement and called for all the leaders to meet May 9th at the White House that include Kevin McCarthy, who has a plan that passed through the House of what he would need in order to uh, raise the debt ceiling. How do you see this going? Well, um, my crystal ball, unfortunately, is not not that positive. Um, you know, there is some literature out there this morning in the journal that shows that the Treasury could act independently to buy bonds and provide enough liquidity to keep uh, our, our debt funding um, alive and afloat. But I would like to look toward sound fiscal policy. The Republican plan that came out of the House is, is very sensible, and a lot of fiscal conservatives honestly have skepticism because we didn't actually downsize government. All we did is basically come up with a plan to prevent growth from exceeding 1% from the 2022 fiscal year budget. So all we did was essentially kick the can down the road, and Democrats don't even until now want to come to the table with something sensible. Brian, it comes down to entitlements. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid is roughly 50% of the federal budget. Democrats say it's because of national defense, but interest on paying the debt just equals that of our national defense spending. The real issue is getting to the bottom of entitlement spending and proposing very simple reforms that would allow us to keep these trust funds solvent. So interesting. Here's Senator Roger Marshall. When this came down that the president will, I guess, at least talk where he said he originally wouldn't cut for. So Joe Biden knows when the deadline is. We'll see if he'll come out of his basement to negotiate it. We have a deal on the table for him. So the ball's in his court. Uh, he knew it was going to be in his court soon. So we anxiously await his response and him to start negotiating. And I, I assume he will. So I think there, there something will have to happen because ultimately it's perception. Who's going to be at fault if June 2nd happens and we don't move things around because we want that deadline, the president wants this deadline to happen and we default on our debt? Does he want to risk that because he's up for election and if the economy has continues to stress like this, he's, that's going to be his report card. So who has leverage? Well, the D's have already aligned their rhetoric to that by saying that we're the ones that are threatening uh, a default when we're the ones that are actually doing the work. Like you said, Speaker McCarthy assembled the votes with a very thin margin, but he actually did the homework by running this through the committee, whereas Senator Schumer on the other side hasn't done anything except put out statements saying that uh, you know this is irresponsible when he's the one who's being irresponsible by not doing his job and being serious and sober and thoughtful about how we rein in this size of spending. The fact is we are now at close to five and a half trillion of annual spending, T with a right. trillion with a T, and we just don't have the sufficient revenue. So this is um, 
unmistakably going to fall on the Democrats because they're not doing the homework in their respective chambers. Well, you know, in, in the cartoon picture dictionary portion of politics, if you go out and say, you know, Social Security in 10 years is, is going to go bankrupt uh, and you say we have to address it, you don't like old people. And then the panic comes in. Nobody over 65 will vote for you. And if you say, I want to, we got to address Medicare, you don't want people to have health care. You don't like poor people to be able to get health care like everybody else. So you're being, again, callous. You must be a Republican. I'm not going to vote for you. So what does Donald Trump say? Yeah, I'm not touching any of that. I'm going to deal with non-discretionary spending. I'll deal with uh, discretionary spending. And then in comes the defense. Why is it that Republicans are responsible for funding defense, even for a Democratic president who you would think it's in his best interest to fund defense? Totally. And it's in the Constitution that our commander in chief protects this nation, whether we're talking about border and security or keeping up with the Chinese in this century long competition. Is it possible for a politician, George, to actually say tough things like that? And not get eviscerated. We watched Rick Scott put it out there and said we should look at entitlements and every five years reevaluate them. And Mitch McConnell said he did a terrible thing in posting that. And Joe Biden made a poster of it. Two things. We need more courage in politics, people that are willing to risk their political career to do the right thing on this issue. Number two is making sure that we're standing behind those candidates and those that are in elective office. But when it comes down to entitlements – It's simple incremental reforms. So going back to Speaker Ryan, Paul Ryan, when he was in office, said, let's not cut these entitlement programs for those that are at or near retirement. Let's look at people that are maybe in their 20s. And if we can forward project 20, 30 years and make these simple reforms by raising the expected age by which we do it. France is doing it, by the way. Yeah, that's going well. <laughs> <laughs> They're riding in the streets to go, go to 65 or 64. Are they crazy? They don't even work hard anyway. Uh, they get almost uh, – they take, what, two-hour lunches or three-hour lunches, and they're riding the streets because the age is going to rise. So, listen, it should be 67. should be 69, correct? Maybe you have an option to do it 62, but you're going to get less. But we all know we're living longer. You can't be – you can't retire for 40 years unless you've afforded yourself that. But you can't say that and get elected, can you? Well, uh, we're, my pack is hoping to, to change that and getting behind the right people to be courageous and take that risk and do the right thing because otherwise we won't have a solvent country and a, a country where the rest of the world envies and sends their capital. One more thing, and then I want to come back and talk about the breaking news. It looks like the president could be sending 1,500 National Guardsmen to the border. He's that concerned about what's happening in two weeks. The second biggest bank failure ever, J.P. Morgan spends $10.6 billion to take over First Republic. Seven, they'll take um, uh, one, uh, $73 billion in loans, $92 billion, $173 billion in loans, $92 billion in deposits. And guess what else they did? They laid off, I think, 3,000 people yesterday. Was it... What is, is is this the canary in the coal mine for the health or is this just bad banking decisions by First Republic? I think that this comes down to regulators sleeping at the wheel. The The fact is, you know, we have to go back to the financial crisis of, of 08 to see uh, massive bank failures to the extent that we're seeing. And the pressures, whether that be in commercial real estate underwriting or um, other parts that are like, say, in tech as it related to Silicon Valley Bank, that the regulators didn't orchestrate transfers or sales to J.P. Morgan. The problematic aspect of this transaction was that the government essentially reached out to Jamie Dimon and said, you must buy this bank. And by the way, we will provide you additional liquidity and share some of the losses in the event there are losses. 
in this transaction. The FDIC insurance picked up 11 to $13 billion, and then they it turns out there was a bunch of bidders. But for up till Friday, they wouldn't do it. But when the FDIC steps in over the weekend, that makes it uh, more of satisfied, a better transaction, right? That's right. And so it's a sweetheart deal um, for J.P. Morgan. And so, you know, when you get into the slippery slope of what federal government's role in all this should be, it should be right. reduced. We need to get back to private market based transactions and the fact that there are very cozy relationships between this administration and the the depositors at both Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. And uh, just look at the depositors at both those banks. You'll see that they're very influential folks that got sweetheart deals on their own end. And this this type of cozy relationship is because regulators aren't asserting their true role in all this. George P. Bush is here. He launches his uh, Restored Trust Pack today. He's going to be outnumbered in a couple hours. Uh, we come back. We ask him about, is his governor a racist like he's been accused by the mayor of New York City? Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I never used the term racist. That was a little creative journalism that was used. Uh, But let's look at the facts. 108,000 cities in New York. 108,000. Governor Abbott sent uh, asylum seekers to New York, black mayor, to Washington, black mayor, to Houston, black mayor, uh, to Los Angeles, black mayor, uh, to Denver, black mayor. He passed over thousands of cities to land here. Okay, George P. Bush, uh, you know Governor Abbott. Do you think that he is sending illegal immigrants to only black city mayors because he doesn't like black city mayors? Mayor Adams should be ashamed of himself to, to play the race card at an important inflection point to deal with the national security issue is beyond irresponsible. Um, he needs to apologize to the governor for playing the race card, and and that's it. This is not a question of race. This is a question of economics. It's a question of a compassionate immigration policy that would penalize breaking our federal immigration laws. And the mayor himself reported that the expense now is $5 million a day to the taxpayers of the city of New York. Our taxpayers in Texas have paid $4.6 billion over the last two years alone since Trump left office. So our budget looks like we will spend north of about $5 billion, yet you don't hear us complain. What we're doing is basically bringing this important policy to the footstep of everyday Americans, whether that happens to be in inner city New York, Chicago, or other suburban communities, and transferring, tra- transferring just a portion of this important responsibility to them so that they can understand this policy and lobby their own president from their own political party to help us on the issue. It's And it's not just Texas. It's other border states, whether that's Arizona, California, and others, that are sick and tired of this. We need help from our federal government. It's a constitutional responsibility, and um, the mayor should be ashamed of himself. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the Biden administration, this just came across, is considering whether to send 1,500 active U.S. troops to the southern border in the coming days because of their fears of tens of thousands of migrants will surge into the country when Title 42 is lifted and ships become Title 8. Um, and they talked about setting up Ancla, uh, uh, centers in Guatemala as well as Colombia. Do you, what do, they, do you think this is a good move? 
Well, it's just a reflection of the, the poor policy. It's panic. So it, it, it's, it's being – it's reflexive to what they know is going to happen. And when you see mayors like in El Paso that are already declaring a, a city emergency – Democratic mayor. Democratic mayor. Knowing that there are tens of thousands of people in Juarez sitting in shelters ready to cross the border in approximately 10 days, they know what's coming. Everybody knows what's coming. But this is, again, just reacting to the issue. Now, if Vice President uh, Harris and, and others really cared about this, they would actually come to the border, listen to Border Patrol officials, our friends that are in the local law enforcement community that have been dealing with this issue every single day. They would know that they could have kept Title 42 on implement remain in Mexico policy, set up the processing centers not in the United States or a port of entry, but south of the border in countries of origin, and we can stem this issue from the source. George, they need pressure in Honduras, in Guatemala, in uh, in El Salvador. If you want your aid, you got to hold on to your people. And then that was working, and because they got on a plane and they flew and they met people, looked at them eye to eye. Hey, good luck on Outnumbered. It's a tough show. And congratulations (laughs) on your super pack, George. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. uh, Back in a moment. This is Brian Kilmeade Show. Liz Peek is next. Then we do a simulcast on Varney and Company. Don't move. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. There are two things in particular I'm interested in determining. From this court case, first of all, uh, what, in fact, is his income from his artwork? Remember, he became an artist after his father became president. That was after the, 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 the gig was up on all the influence peddling and the LLCs had been determined when we began our investigation uh, and started questioning for uh, and subpoenaing bank records. So he shifted uh, his primary source of income to supposedly selling art. We want to know how much money he's made from the artwork and who the buyers are. That's the most important part, who the buyers of this artwork are. We we fear they're the same ones that were laundering the money into the LLCs, uh, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, you fear, but you also want to get to the bottom of it. It would be unbelievable if it was. James Comer on American Reports yesterday, he had joined us as well. Liz Peek is with us, Fox News contributor, columnist for FoxNews.com and The Hill. Liz, welcome back. Where do you? How close are you looking at this Arkansas case? Well, I think uh, we're all kind of fascinated by it, starting with the premise that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is stupid enough to have sued over child support, which had to mean, had to lead to exposure of his financial situation. So here is an administration that is doing its level best to suppress information about Hunter Biden's income, his assets, his involvements with foreign companies, what he is paid by them, how he distributed the proceeds from pretty questionable dealings in weird countries like Ukraine and China to the rest of his family. And my gosh, he goes to court over a money matter. I mean, honestly, it just blows my mind. I have no idea what he thought was going to happen in this courtroom, but it sure isn't playing out the way he thought. We want to find out, for example, he had that Chinese company, which he sold his 10 percent stake. And they say, it's, get this, the range is $420,000 to $10 million. <laughs> So just because you didn't make any money last year, it doesn't mean that $10 million is not going to be in play this year. And do you really want to bring attention to the fact that your family told this four-year-old to go jump in a lake? I have no interest in you. I don't care what the issue was or what the what the woman does for a living. It's still your kid. 
Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, just it just reduces the sleaziness factor uh, in this entire episode to sort of an, a family brand, right? I mean, the whole family is doing this. This is not just Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is thick as thieves with his father and his stepmother, Jill Biden. They must be condoning all of this. And this is, to your point, a child of this fellow, of this family, that they're basically ignoring uh, and trying to now weasel out of in terms of financial commitments. I don't know. The whole thing is so completely horrible to me. Someone referred to to uh, Hunter Biden last night on Fox News as trailer trash. I mean, you know, I've never used that term for describing anyone, but I got to say, this is pretty trashy behavior. And I, I don't know. I think it's incredibly embarrassing, and it certainly does not reflect well on the president or his family. So you wrote a column uh, last week, and you said Joe Biden could do one major move and win a second term. What's that move? Well, look, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that Joe Biden needs to do to win a second term. Um, I, I <laughs> want, you know, one is to actually live up to his campaign promises, including move towards the middle, actually work with Republicans uh, and, you know, stop demeaning them every chance you get. That was one of his big uh, pledges, as you may recall. Second is governor as a moderate. I I was amused to see all the excitement about Bernie Sanders um, recently coming out and endorsing Joe Biden. What did they think was going to happen after all? Uh, you know, Joe Biden has basically run on uh, the Bernie Sanders agenda. So, uh, look, I don't think Joe Biden should be the candidate. I don't think that Americans want Joe Biden to be the candidate. Not even Democrats want Joe Biden to be the candidate. Unfortunately, it's who that party is stuck with at the moment. Uh, and and I think it's just a horror show, honestly. He's still vilifying the rich, and you go into detail saying when he gets on his stump and says, "I think billionaires should pay more than eight percent of their income." How's that? And the and the guys in the fake hard hats and the chin straps start going, "Yeah, that's exactly right. The rich are the terrible people." How does that help the country? Number one and number two, it is not a figure that's accurate. It's disingenuous at best. Oh, I, I, but he is disingenuous. He's basically uh, incredibly dishonest about his uh, economic agenda, about his about taking no responsibility for inflation. I mean, after all, you know, American voters have connected the dots between this out of control spending under Democrats and uh, the fact that inflation soared to 40 year highs under his administration. Um, You know, he lies all the time. He lies because his group, his his entire administration is incompetent. And incredibly, no one has taken any responsibility for the fact that all these bank failures happening under his watch, the second, third and fourth largest bank failures in our country's history have happened exactly because the Fed has ratcheted up interest rates faster than has happened in decades. So there's a reason for that. The reason is because of inflation, and the inflation came about because of outsized spending. Do I think he should rein in spending? Yes. I think that's actually the one thing that he could do now, actually negotiate with Kevin McCarthy in faith, in good faith, to bring down spending, because Americans are alarmed by our deficits. By the way, spending in the first six months of this year, federal spending is up 12 percent. So it's not working. All this patting himself on the back about lower deficits, everyone knows it's complete baloney. So 
I, I do think that is a path towards this administration right. regaining some credibility, but it's not going to happen. Uh, Liz Peek, our guest. So, Liz, as you know, the the deficit reduction package that he put out there does not reduce the deficit. In fact, right. it cost $365 billion. But, you know, when they actually start implementing this, it's around a trillion Think about mm-hmm. that. Have you ever mm-hmm. had done something where you something's supposed to cost ten dollars? It's supposed to cost three dollars. Ends up being ten, and just times that from billion to trillion. Unbelievable that they're allowed to get away with this and not nix the legislation. But you talk about not telling the truth. Listen to KJP yesterday when it comes to what's happening at our border. Cut nine. On Friday evening, a nine-year-old child was murdered along with four others in yet another shocking horrific act of gun violence in America, this time in Cleveland, Texas. Two of the women killed were discovered on top of surviving children and appeared to be shielding them from gunfire. In all, five people were murdered by an individual armed with a powerful AR-15. So what they should say is the individual was drunk and was uh, escaped into our country back and forth five times over the last 10 years. Uh, This guy, they want to blame the gun and the rifle. Again, using this as an opportunity not to talk about the victims who were here illegally and the assailant that's now probably safely back in Mexico. But when it came to what's happening at the border, listen to this, cut 10. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent. That is not true. Uh, uh, 90 percent. Are you kidding? I just reported that he's considering sending 1,500 U.S. troops down to the border. I assume they meant National Guardsmen. Because they expect Title 42 to evaporate and the surge to happen. We last two years, we've said records with oh, millions of people coming here. How does she get away with that? Well, and, and look, I think the entire country is now suffering from the after effects of this. Yes, she's completely lying. Uh, there was a dip in the in illegal immigration from various countries after they passed a law, but it was more than made up for elsewhere and now has been completely lost in time. Yeah. Look, we have millions of people in the country illegally. All of us are paying for it. Americans have got to get their head around the fact that this is an expensive undertaking and it's illegal. I mean, let's go back to the basics here. Joe Biden is supposed to protect our country from illegal immigration. They are failing to do that. I have written for months that Mayorkas should be impeached for failing a legal requirement that this border be controlled. It is not controlled. He's lied about it. Joe Biden lied about it. It is not surprising that his press secretary is lying about it. It's horrifying to me. And, you know, honestly, there's so many reasons we need to bounce Joe Biden out of office in 2024. This is probably one that 90 percent of the country agrees with. Uh, I hope Polling so. Shows that. In yeah, the last 72 too. hours, two agents assaulted, 22,000 apprehensions, 806 methamphetamine, 806 pounds of meth, 283 pounds of marijuana, 62 pounds of cocaine, three firearms, <laughs> Uh, five maritime events, two sex offenders, two tractor trailer events, one convicted murderer, one gang member. Please tell me what is more important. And as of now, this year, 1.2 plus million have come across illegally. Last year's all time record was 2.3 million. We're on pace to beat that. So that's just inexcusable. It's horrifying. And again, the good news is people in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, People are waking up to this as a problem. The the liberal media has suppressed this information, has not focused on it. But guess what? When you're paying millions of dollars every day to house, feed, and offer free medical care uh, to people in the country illegally, people begin to notice. 
You know, blue cities are not in great shape financially. It's only going to get worse. And these migrants are going to become gotcha. a, a bigger and bigger political uh, anchor, I think. Right. I hope. He wants to run by saying, watch my performance. We're watching. Liz Peek, thank you. Varney and Company next. Simulcast. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back. Listen, on the other side of this, I'm going to be able to take some calls. So I see you out there, 1 866 408 7669. And you're going to hear this great answer Kevin McCarthy gave over in Israel when asked something by a Russian reporter. So I want to get to that. But in a minor moments, I'm going to go on FBN. We do a simulcast. You guys uh, are my audience. We share with Stuart Varney's audience on the cable network, the number one cable, the fastest rising cable network in the country. And we're going to talk a little bit about Hunter Biden and the, the ridiculous trial he has going on in Arkansas. So let's listen in. It means it's time for the man on the right-hand side of your screen replacing me, Brian Kilmeade, right there. Brian, the administration's deciding whether or not to send 1,500 active troops to the border before Title 42 lifts next week. Is this a panic move at the last minute? Number one, I don't know if he's allowed. I'm pretty sure you can't unleash the army in our country. Number two, it's got to be National Guardsmen, I, I assume. So, yeah, this is panic. But what does it show you? You know what they're saying to themselves? When those Haitians were stuck under the bridge for all those days, it became a story that not only Fox, but every other network took. And all the reporters scurried down there. This is going to be that times 10. And you're going to see all these people coming across. They're already there. They're already surging. 12, 14,000 a day. They already have the plan in place. This is the fourth time in which Title 42 is going to be lifted and was held off. Well, now it's for good. And they're going to put Title Eight in place. Do you know they have not built a structure in Guatemala as they promised or in Colombia like they pledged in order for people to apply there? So their plan isn't even in place, nor is it effective. The Mexican government is not dealt in. They are not cooperating. They want to find a way to not let the whole border buckle. That's what's going to happen. Right now, Operation Lone Star in Texas is keeping everything together because the Border Patrol is overwhelmed. Same thing in Arizona with private sheriffs doing things, giving up on doing what they're supposed to be doing and going to the border with the federal government. This is terrible. Don't worry. The vice president's on it. Oops, I forgot. She's not into doing it. Not even calling the Central and South American countries to say control your population or you lose your aid. That was sarcasm, Brian, but it was well taken and a good point, too. Change the subject. You see this, Brian? Uh, uh, Novak Novak Djokovic will play at this year's U.S. Open. The U.S. lifted the vaccine mandate on international travelers. I would say, Brian, it's about time. No, now I won't go to the U.S. Open. It's not going to be safe. If great players (laughs) uh, 100 feet from me sweating on their own on the side of a court... A darn vaccinated. How could I possibly go there, buy to pay $22 for a hot dog and sit in the stands in 110 degree weather and watch him route somebody? This has been an embarrassment to our country. There is no yeah. reason for him to have been denied uh, all these other tournaments. Last year's U.S. Open and beyond. There was one out in California, too. This is just shows you it's a laziness to lift something. People are coming here unvaccinated anyway. But, uh, but tennis champions had to stand aside. Listen, Governor DeSantis was serious. He said, go to, go to the Caribbean island. I will pick you up in a boat and bring you here, and you get to stay. Or we could drop you in Cuba, and we get you from there. 
That's how dumb this policy is. But maybe Title 42 going, Joe, uh, uh, Novak Djokovic playing the U.S. Open. Maybe things are getting back to normal, Stuart. Dream on, son. Dream on, because we're not there yet. Brian, you're all right. Thanks very much indeed. I've got to bring in uh, Professor Brian Bremberg into this. Okay, thing. Professor. He's not a professor anymore. I think he's uh, elevated his title. So I wanted to bring you to this. Speaker Kevin McCarthy's over in Israel, and he's going to be meeting about the debt ceiling, but this is not what this question was from. These Russian reporters are really advocates for the Russian government, and they ask a very uh, telling and leading question to Speaker uh, McCarthy. Let's listen. Cut 32. No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And the question was, you've said before, no blank check to Ukraine. How, when, does that, when, do the, when does the American money stop? And that's what he came back on. The problem is, Ukrainians don't want to hear unlimited funds because they know they've got to win this year. This is what's going to happen. The surge is going to take place in the spring in Ukraine, and everything's on the line. The West is pouring uh, tanks and money in too slow. Got it. Ammunition not there at, at the right rate. Understand it. We should be giving them fighter jets and let them win, but we're not. But I think that we're ready. There was already a huge explosion in Crimea for the Ukrainians to take back their country. You can't talk about peace Unless you get the invaders out of the country or push back to a tenable point, that will lead to a sustainable peace. And then you put peacekeepers on the border to make sure there's another invasion. And then you make sure these other NATO nations, and they're not in NATO and they probably never will be. They're not in NATO, but these other nations like Estonia and Lithuania and others aren't pressured, uh, Moldova, to give up their, uh, their autonomy because the Russians feel uncomfortable with so many Western countries at their border. And I just uh, I think it's just a great answer. And I also think it's kind of good not to be divided. If you are against the Ukrainian operation, you're not un-American. You totally are, you're entitled to make that have that opinion. I just see it so abundantly clear because of the Russian mindset and Vladimir Putin's track record that if you give them Ukraine after what they did in Georgia and what they've done here, taking Crimea and taking most of the Donbass region, then invading – then I think it's just be you're getting a uh, the next generation is going to be so angry at this one for letting the Russians get emboldened because when they took this land they also got all the natural resources they got the ports they become stronger but they become more formidable what they've also suffered is over two hundred thousand casualties and eighty thousand dead that's minimum that's pretty serious stuff and that's a terrible fighting force it's been described almost like World War One again that's how brutal the fighting has been. So we'll see what happens. I know Zelensky is uh, talking to the West, trying to get the tanks in place. I think that we've sped up the Abrams, uh, the Abrams tanks getting there. It was supposed to be in the fall. I think we've got there a little bit earlier. I also think the Patriot missiles are in place. I guess at least two batteries. We're not going to say exactly where. Once they get in place, they're, they're being trained. I know some are being trained also over in Sweden. And I think this thing could break uh, Ukrainians' way. Listen, Ukraine's not a perfect country, but they're the good guys in this. And and they're the ones who know how to fight. And they're the ones who get the training and just trying to restore their life. They have a whole re- country to rebuild after this. But the fighting's not going to stop until they get back their land. So I think anybody in the West should hope they make the gains necessary to make it possible for a peace. 
from the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, Jack Curry's coming up at the bottom of the hour. You know, he is a studio analyst for the Yes Network, Yankees Network. Uh, other brand new book, the 1998 Yankees, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever. They're anything but that so far this year. Much to the surprise of many people, uh, you sign Aaron Judge and you got everybody back and now everyone's unhappy. So uh, we're following a couple of stories that just came in. And that is that the president of the United States is thinking about sending 1,500 troops down to the border right before Title 42 goes because they expect such a surge at the border. I think it's a violation of the Constitution. I don't think you can use our army at the border. National Guard, you could probably put there, obviously. But right now, you got Operation Lone Star doing the work that the Border Patrol can't do because they're so overwhelmed. So we'll follow that, and we're seeing the latest breaking news as it relates around uh, Hunter Biden. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. What, in fact, is his income from his artwork? We want to know how much money he's made from the artwork and who the buyers are. That's the most important part, who the buyers of this artwork are. We fear they're the same ones that were laundering the money into the LLCs, uh, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, That is James Comer, the baby mama drama, tone deaf and arrogant Hunter Biden appears at court. Arkansas judge, uh, he wants less child support to pay for a four-year-old girl he won't acknowledge. His lawyers get a cold reception from the judge, and they want to see his finances, even though he claims to be broke. Number two. When it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent, and that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. But we know that more action needs to be taken, so it has to be legislative action. There you go. Uh, KJP signs are ominous at the blitz of the border. It's just weeks away as illegals line up for a surge like we have never seen before. This is the manhunt continues for a killer here illegally who just murdered five in a drunken rage. Number one. President Biden called all four congressional leaders on Monday and invited them to a meeting next Tuesday here at the White House to discuss the debt limit. This new alert from the Treasury Department is only adding to the pressure to reach a resolution quickly. That is a deadline is a red line, it seems. And suddenly the White House will meet with Republicans to avoid defaulting on our debt June 1st. Other red lights are flashing on the economy, too. We will discuss it. And that's just it. For you have the bank collapse, the second biggest in our history, First Republic, bought by J.P. Morgan. And then J.P. Morgan lays off thousands of people. I don't know if it's related, but I don't know. You might need some of those people for the uh, 80 plus branches you just hired. Who knows? But we have that. We also have an indication the Fed's going to raise rates again. Are you kidding? Why would you do that? It seems like they're going to do that this week. Not great. And we have the president of the United States getting informed by his secretary of Treasury that we're going to hit the debt ceiling June 1st. He now calls the leaders in Congress to the White House May 9th. Here's Senator John Kennedy cut to. I remember several years ago when Republicans were in charge uh, in order to increase the debt ceiling. We had to agree to give Democrats substantial more domestic spending. Um, Now, maybe they've had an epiphany and been born again, but uh, uh, debt ceilings are always negotiated. Uh, But but President Biden has said repeatedly, I want to see the Republican plan. He, he, uh, He has now seen it's not just the Republican plan, it's the only plan that I'm aware of, and the fact that that he is uh, willing to sit down and 
and have an adult conversation about how to allocate scarce resources is long overdue. I wish he'd started doing this some time ago. Yeah, now he feels like he doesn't have a choice. He knows they think they... Uh, with the commercial real estate is the time bomb because no one goes to work anymore. These big cities have empty buildings. A lot of them take out loans from mid-level banks and big banks, and they can't pay them. They'll walk away. If the landlords walk away, then these buildings stay empty, and then they find got to figure out a way to get their money. How do you get their money? Well, maybe they walk away from the loans they own buildings, and that could be a ripple effect when it comes to commercial real estate. That, according to um, Warren Buffett's partner, so the, you have the bank failure, the raising rates, the J.P. Morgan laying people off, and now you have a situation where small business feels like they're targeted by this White House. And here's what they're saying. So the National Federation of Independent Businesses slammed the president and the vice president remarks on small business. Said if the White House wants to help small business, they will immediately abandon their plans to raise small business taxes. These idiots think that small business is the problem. They are the engine. He says the new tax hikes proposed by the White House in this new budget request would hurt Main Street's ability to recover, grow, and create jobs. The White House should instead focus on promoting economic growth and provide certainty, such as permanently extending the small business uh, deductions. That would certainly help, it seems. So in terms of what's happening with the economy, if there's one concern that everybody agrees with, it's the economic concerns and with the banking system. Mick Mulvaney knows a thing or two about bailouts. He was in Congress, member of the Freedom Caucus, former director of the OMB, cut six. The discussion right now is obviously whether or not these uh, insurance limits are going to go up right now that you're limited to $250,000 of insured FDIC deposits. A lot of discussion, both in Washington amongst lawmakers and the regulators, is to take that up perhaps to infinity. That's not free. Someone's going to pay for that, and it's usually folks who have the money on deposit. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out, whether or not there's going to be any risk at all, or if the government is going to say, look, banking is going to be a risk-free sort of process. That costs money. And at the end of the day, it usually costs taxpayer money. Of course, they'll say that it costs depositors money, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the insurer of last resort appears to be the federal government, which is a dangerous precedent to set. So he knows. I uh, had a situation. There's a lot of negotiating when it comes to spending. He could tell you the truth, and we should probably have him on here about whose idea the spending was and how much was hostage negotiation to get budgets passed. And he, not like he got a whole money for the wall, believe me. So we'll find out about these bank bailouts and the irresponsibilities, it seems, of the CEOs of these companies and the oversight. Now, you want to start putting money into government regulation and oversight more than the Fed boards are doing now? That's another conversation. Let's talk about illegal immigration. It is probably the number one issue in the country domestically right now. 90,000 migrants crossed the U.S. border in the last 10 days. Panic over Title 42 ending. How do I know it's panic? Well, now we got proof of it. The administration actually thinking about spending sending 1,500 troops down to the border. What budget does that come out of? Look at what they've got over the last 72 hours. 22,000 apprehensions, 806 pounds of meth, 283 pounds of marijuana, 62 pounds of cocaine, five uh, uh, firearms, maritime events, two sex offenders, one gang member. This is just what we got, let alone the gotaways. These bad guys don't really want to be caught. So what's the administration doing about it? Almost nothing except for all reacting, pretending that the border's closed. John Inarelli knows about what's happening in Texas. Sees what's going on. First off, let me give you some backstory. Uh, on Sunday, this uh, couple 
this family of five with their brother-in-law staying over, uh, got tired of the shooting. They got little kids. And next door, this guy is shooting his gun off. So they knock on the door and they say, listen, can you do me a favor? We got little kids over here. They're getting scared. Can you stop shooting your gun? And they said no. And this guy says no. He goes, all right, I'm going to let the cops settle it. So they walk back to the house and he stands on his porch with a loaded rifle and then goes over there and decides, I'm going to go over to the family. The mom, the mom says, I'll stand on the porch. You guys go inside. He would never shoot a woman. And the guy shoots the woman point blank, goes inside and executes everyone, including a nine-year-old. The father jumped out the window, gets free. The brother-in-law was able to hide in the closet with his daughter under clothes and was missed. The guy got away. He's believed somewhere in Texas or he escaped back to Mexico where he has spent a lot of quality time. He has been caught sneaking into our country in March 2009, September 2009, January 2012, he was deported, and July 2016. Then he comes back. He buys a house, or he just took the house, or he's renting the house, but he's in a house. John Inarelli, FBI agent, cut 12. This is what the FBI does so well. There's a lot of things they're going to be doing, including liaisoning with their Mexican counterparts. The reality, when fugitives are on the run, they need a place to go. They rely on family, friends. Somebody's going to give information to law enforcement, and he's going to be taken into custody. But there's a reason we have laws, and it's situations like this where we want to keep a certain element at bay. This person needs to be found and held accountable, and it's a lesson for all politicians. Address the border issues. This person broke a bunch of laws, including your right. He could not legally own a gun. Firing a gun in his front lawn is against the law as well. This is a criminal. He needs to be captured and off the street and held accountable. So listen, not only couldn't he buy a gun here, but he came across the border with a gun. Neither one. They're both illegal. They've been deported multiple times, making a joke of our border. What are the odds? The odds are great that all these people crossing the border, some of them have evil intentions. I mean, I still don't have a good explanation of why we're getting thousands of Chinese suddenly lining up, dressed like uh, upper class, uh, stuck in the Panamanian desert. Uh, I think they're making, excuse me, jungles. I think they're making their way here. Why now? Because it's almost impossible to leave China these days. They're sucked uh, they're sucking wind on their population. Everyone hates it. The crackdowns are tremendous. I just don't trust that they're here because they're escaping. Victor Davis Hansen sees this breakdown of the border, sees the cries of get this racism from the mayor of New York City. Adams says it's racist for the white governor of Texas to send illegal immigrants to mayor, to cities with black mayors in Philadelphia, New York and Chicago. Really? Black mayors, New York City. Black mayors in those other cities, that's the reason why we're sending them? How about don't make it a sanctuary city, come one, come all? How about don't you feed, you clothe, you uh, you make sure they got recreational activities, the kids go to school? Why wouldn't they come to a city? Victor Davis Hanson weighed in last night with Laura, cut 13. And then we have the Democratic Party. It keeps bragging about demography as destiny. They have articles and books, Laura, with that title. But as soon as one says, well, yes, that's what you're doing, then they turn it around and say, oh, you believe in the great replacement theory. You're a racist. But they're they're the racialists. They're trying to bring in voters because they feel they flipped California, Nevada, Arizona, maybe New Mm -hmm. Mexico. And it's very cynical. They do it on purpose. The only thing you could think of it. 
It's not as if we're in the middle of a world war and we can't concentrate on our southern border. I mean, this is, should be – it costs us so much money, so much money in security, so much money in processing. These cities get overwhelmed. They're asking for a bailout from the federal government. It's all our money. And to me, it's such in his best interest to seal it up and lock it down. I don't know why he doesn't do it. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 866 You listen to Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think we need to be very cautious about any, anything that is anti-American product and anything that is that, that results in the suppression of free speech. You know, those are two of the aspects of the work point virus that I think are very dangerous. Is that it's, it's often anti-American and you can't you can't question things. Even the questioning is bad. You know, another way to almost synonymous would be, would be cancel culture. And obviously, people have tried to cancel you many times. Many times. Yeah, I mean, you're, every week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Elon Musk had a great conversation with Bill Maher and just back and forth. And just Bill Maher has the same feeling I have. I just appreciative of somebody that would have a space program, a tunnel program, a satellite network, Starlink, uh, try to get you to Mars, try to transport satellites into, uh, I guess, would you call it low, near space? Would you call it near space? Okay, okay, into space, near space. And then you have... uh, of course, Twitter and then Tesla, the electric car. But he pioneered all that. So people are saying now, well, people are going past Tesla. OK, a lot of the, uh, the battery innovation, a lot of the stops and starts that they had are benefiting everybody right now. Yeah, he did it in China because they, we have no rare earth here. And it was China wasn't looked at as the pervasive threat it was when Tesla first launched. Now you want him to get out of there. It's as difficult as getting Apple out of there. But having said that, I just appreciate somebody who not only thinks but does and I laugh at these people who are critical of of somebody like him. I mean, he's like the Thomas Edison of this generation. Not every, you know, the movies, light, light bulbs, uh, you know, the Alexander Graham Bell of, you know, he made uh, the telephone more sophisticated, whatever he's doing. But now it really worries me that he is worried about AI. And he wants the pause. And he created Chatbot GBT. He got in a fight with the other guy, and he decided, you go ahead and do it. Now he's going to start a sanitized AI. So they did a poll. Fox News did a poll. And they asked, for, uh, for society, AI technology is a uh, good thing or bad thing? 38% say good thing. 46% say, uh, 46% say bad thing. Wow. Uh, how about this? Important for government to regulate AI. said yes, no, 20%. So that's one thing they're calling for is regulation, but first it's got to be education. And that's why Elon Musk and others going to Capitol Hill. The other guy, Schmidt, uh, I think it's Eric Schmidt of Google, I think he left. He was also uh, very cautious and and wary. About a month ago, he was on one of the Sunday shows cautioning about it. Get everybody in there to educate these men and women in the Senate, in the House, about what it is fundamentally, not that they have to invent it, but they should understand it, and then set the regulations in place. The crazy thing is, is that I never believe that the Chinese are going to go along with it. So the godfather of AI is this guy named Jeffrey Hinton. He has left 
the company in order to do this. He says, I console myself with the normal excuse. If I hadn't done it, nobody else would. It's hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using AI to do bad things. The idea that this stuff could actually get smarter than people. A few people believe that. But most people thought it was way off. And I thought it was way off. I thought it was 30 to 50 years, even longer. Obviously, no longer can say that. Industry leaders believe the new AI systems could be important to the introduction of the, as important to the as the introduction of the web browser in the early 90s, and could lead to breakthroughs ranging from drug research to education. That's the good stuff. Now, generative AI can already can already be a tool for misinformation that could cause and also could take away jobs. Somewhere down the line, tech's biggest uh, worriers. It could be a risk to humanity. Quote, it's hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using it to do bad things. So 19 current and former leaders of the Association for Advancement of Artificial Intelligence released their own list of warnings. A thousand technology leaders and researchers signed an open letter calling for a six-month moratorium. And now they're coming to brief Congress. How do you feel about it? one 408 Here's Steve Wozniak, one of the co-founders of Apple. Cut 24. AI has beneficial effects in giving us like a lot of good guidance, like being a good reporter, and we humans should be the editor. There should always be a human editor. And when that's not the case, um, we're going to have a lot of problems. Um, you know, as far as, you know, AI being used to, I don't know, deep fakes, you know, making somebody sound like a person you know in their voice and taking advantage of, you know, a mother. Um, we've seen that recently, and, and there's going to be a lot more of that than there ever was before tricking you into things. Tricking is going to be a lot easier for those who want to trick you. And, uh, you know, we don't really have any, we're not really making any changes in that regard. We're just assuming that the laws we have will take care of it. So I'm a little, um, you know, worried that people, about people being abused more than anything else. Okay. How many more smart people do we need to say that before we start taking heed? 1-866-408-7669. Instead of looking ahead, Let's look to America's pastime next. Jack Curry wrote the book, The 1988 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team. Is it? I want you to weigh in. Did a great job on the book. Uh, The Yankees aren't doing a great job this year, but I digress. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Into right center field. Grissom will not get there off the wall, off the bat of O'Neill. Trying for two. Six with a double. Paul O'Neill may be hurt. And Bernie Williams, who has a hit tonight, only two in this division series. Into left center field. Giles is there. Celebrate. And there it is. Uh, The Indians beat the Yankees. Uh, the Guardians, excuse me. Yeah, the Indians beat the Yankees, uh, and Jack Curry has an idea for a book because he sensed that the 1998 Yankees, after the 97, uh, disappointed, uh, fell short of a championship. They had the makings of what he believes in his book was a, a great team, and boy, were they. Some say the best ever. Jack Curry in studio. He's an analyst on the Yes Network. You see him all the time. Multiple New York Times bestseller. His brand-new book is now out, The 1998 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever. Jack, why was it important for you to start on the last out of, for the Indians? Brian, I've covered a lot of losing clubhouses, and that clubhouse resonated with me how morose and how miserable that Yankee team was in 97. 
I think they felt after as, winning in '96. After winning in '96, I think they thought the magic carpet ride was going to continue. And when Cleveland knocks them out, walking around that clubhouse and just seeing how miserable these guys were. When I wrote this book about '98, I knew we had to start in '97 because before the glory of '98. There was some suffering in 97 that motivated those guys. Right. So the team starts laying the foundation, and they got off to a strong start. Give us an idea first of the rotation. Well, their rotation there, that year, their rotation went 79-35. and 35. You've got David Wells, who pitched the perfect game that year. David Cohn, who won 20 games. Boomer won 18, by the way. You have Andy Pettit, as steady as any postseason pitcher in history. Hideki Arabu is your fifth starter. He got off to a really strong start, was actually the American League pitcher of the month in May. And then the wild card that I'm leaving out is El Duque. Comes over from Cuba. The Yankees sign him to a deal. He only gets his first start because David Cohn's mother's dog bit him on the finger, and the Yankees needed an emergency starter. And then El Duque says, I'm never going to leave, and wins the biggest game of the year for them in the postseason. So he was considered a great pitcher. We just don't know how old he was, right? When he signed with the Yankees, there had been a baseball card floating around from an earlier tournament that said he was either 28 or 32. And Brian Cashman, the Yankees general manager, had a funny line. He said, if he signs with us, he's 28. If he signs with anybody else, he's 32. (laughs) Right. So he comes out the right players at the right time. Of course, language on a side note. So I was doing all sports at Fox at the time in 98, and they said, Brian, go cover the, go cover the, um, the lottery. It was the lottery over in New Jersey. So they were picking it, and I guess it was a big deal because a few years ago, it was a big deal ever since Patrick Ewing was picked. So I was heading over, and they said, change course, go to Yankee Stadium. I go, I don't have a pass. They go, we'll get you a pass. So I walked over, and I got the temporary pass, and I watched David Wells lock it out. And someone said to me, don't ever get rid of it because at some point he's going to retire and don't ask him now, but he'll sign it. Sure enough. I think it was last year. I think he was in, he came in and signed the pass. He but signed was it for a, you. Yeah. And it's been a while for a no hitter for the Yankees, right? Yes. I mean, the only other perfect game was Don Larson in the 1956 world series. It was more than no hitter. It was perfect. It was perfect game. And also Brian, the story that leads up to that, he went out drinking the night before. He's very open about this. He said, I shouldn't go out. I shouldn't go out. He ends up going out drinking. He runs into Jimmy Fallon, stays out till 530 in the morning, drives to Yankee Stadium. Again, he's fortunate and everybody else is fortunate that he made it there. And then feeling lousy, pitches a perfect game. Allows you to concentrate and just focus. Didn't Babe Ruth have stories like that in the past, too? That would be perfect because Wells is a big memorabilia collector, has a a Babe Ruth baseball, and I'm sure other artifacts from Babe Ruth. So you start the book saying the greatest team ever, and it's always subjective. Even though baseball's the closest to being able to judge generation to generation, big parks, small parks, big, you know, uh, I guess uh, a light ball, a heavy ball. But looking at this team, you gave us the rotation. Give me the lineup now. Lineup was ferocious. Knobloch, Jeter, Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams, Tino Martinez, Jorge Posada. You had Daryl Strawberry and Tim Raines both in left field and or DH. You had Scott Brocious hitting eighth or ninth in the lineup and driving in 100 runs. This bench, Brian, featured Strawberry, Reigns, and Chili Davis, just absolute beasts Character. on the bench. Characters, right? too. And guys who had won before, who brought character to the clubhouse. And I think they were on a mission from early in the season, not just to beat teams, but to pummel teams. Jeter actually told me that for the book. He said, we wanted to pummel you into submission. 
Why that team, and I know 96 was the first time they emerged. 95, they get close. Mattingly retires. They get Tino Martinez. 96, they win it all, famously coming back from two down. Mm-hmm. Were they down 0-2? And then Wade yep. Boggs hopping on the horse. Got it. But 97, they're real good, not good enough. And 98, looking now having the benefit of foresight, of knowing what they had the Yankees in 2000, 2001, 2003, what was it about the mix of that team? Because the core kind of stayed the same. The core kind of stayed the same. They do win in 99 and 2000. But the point I tried to make in this book, Brian, was I want to pick the best team ever so it's it's one season. That team was about accountability, responsibility, talent, focus, and ferocity. All in their primes, it seems. All in their prime, except for some of the guys we just mentioned who were veteran bench players. Tino Martinez, and you've been in baseball clubhouses. Tino Martinez told me something that resonated with me. He said that whole season – He never saw one guy lounging on the couch reading a magazine or reading a newspaper. Today it would be they'd be on their phone. But he said everybody was working. Uh, O'Neill was taking extra swings. Cohn was talking to El Duque about the grip on his changeup. Mariano was talking to some of the relievers about their roles for that night. And I think they pushed each other. And, Brian, you know the way any athlete acts. Once you start to have success, your confidence just goes through the roof. And I think that Yankee team recognized early on Nobody should touch them. That they they should win and win big. So you, uh, we know Tory style. You know he's not new to excellent player. Got in the Hall of Fame as a manager. Actually went to Cooperstown two weeks ago for the first time. So I, was, I have all that stuff in my head still. How'd you enjoy it? It was fantastic. It was fantastic. Yeah. I, I can't imagine a better hall. If yeah. I am, I haven't been to Canton yet, but I love that it's in Cooperstown. I know mm-hmm. people are against it. I like that they revitalize that small little town. But looking at that team, how did? Joe Torre managed that team. Did he change his style at all? The two words I always use to describe Torre are soothing and stoic. And I think what he did that year, Brian, is he laid the groundwork for the success this team had in the first week of the season. They go one and four, and he doesn't like the way that they're playing. Before the sixth game of the season, he has a meeting where for Joe Torre, it was pretty angry. Keep in mind, Steinbrenner's still there. Steinbrenner's still Still there. So so if you're one and four as a manager – there's always going to be ink spilled in the newspapers about he, your he status. He fired Yogi after eight games. Fired he? Yogi at six and ten oh. in 1985. <laughs> so the smart thing Tory also did in that meeting was he invited the players to speak. And David Cohn stood up and said, you've got to find a reason to hate your opponent. We should hate Seattle. They knock Paul O'Neill on his butt every time we play them. Edgar Martinez was swinging at 3-0 pitches the other night. we got to go out there and beat these guys. Knobloch leads off that game with a home run. They win. They win 22 of their next 24. They win 64 of their next 80. There are sometimes people who want to poo-poo team meetings. I think that meeting by Joe Torre is one of the greatest meetings in baseball history. How did you find out about it? Word trickled out as the year evolved and people were talking about it. you remember 98? I remember it later in the season. Where were you? I was a national beat writer then. So I wasn't the beat writer who was there on a day-to-day basis. But when you're a national baseball writer, Brian, the biggest story that year, well, second biggest, Sosa and McGuire was number one. But the 98 Yankees were such a huge story that I was around them all the time. So I want you to, I'm going to go back a little. This is how David Wells' perfect game sounded, cut 34. The 0-1, swung on, he's going to get it. Popped up to right field, O'Neal near the line. He makes the catch, David Wells. David Wells has pissed a perfect game. 27 up, 27 down. 
baseball immortality for David Wells. And the Yankees win. The Yankees win. So people were obviously pumped up. So didn't before the game, David Cohn tell Wells, stay away from Joe Torre. He's not going to let you pitch. Because you smell like alcohol. Right. Cohn thought that Wells smelled so much of alcohol, he told him to go hide in the back. So Wells went and, quote, hid in the massage room where the Yankees would get massages from this therapist and basically went in through his bullpen, felt like he didn't have anything. He says he threw two balls into the stands, but then he went out on the mound and the first pitch out of his hand felt good, and he started to get a little steady. He started to get some traction underneath himself. So imagine this, Brian, all the people who went to that game that day, the promotion was a beanie baby. Remember, back in the day, those beanie babies were wanted items. They never knew they were also going to get a perfect game to go along with their beanie baby. You know what's interesting? You know, sometimes when you play at any level, when you have a slight fever or you're fighting something, it helps you focus because you don't feel – you shut off exterior things because you're like, yeah, I feel good. Let me just focus on this game. In a way, being hungover – might have helped him because he's like, oh, I hope I survive. Just let him focus on one thing to pitch. It's amazing in a team you describe as so disciplined that they would tolerate David Wells partying like that. Uh, David Wells and Joe Torrey did not get along. And I detail this in the book, how David Cohn is an unsung hero on that team because he intervened, saw that Wells and Torrey didn't get along, and said to Torrey, I'll take them. I'll handle them. Brian, they did something that very few professional athletes are allowed to do, and I I think they just did it under the radar. They would stay away from the team on the road. If the Yankees went to Cleveland, Detroit, Boston, wherever they went, Cohn and Wells would stay at a different team hotel because – a different hotel because Cohn recognized it would help Wells get away from the madness of the team hotel – and it would also allow Wells to feel like a little bit of a rebel. But a little bit, but it's a lot of responsibility for Cohn. Let's say he goes, yeah, I'm going out tonight. Jeez, you're, not, you're going out tonight? Cohn went with him. Oh, they, he went they, with him. Cohn went with him, and it worked. Moderation. If you look at from the time Wells' perfect game until the end of the year, David Cohn and David Wells were statistically two of the best pitchers in the American League. They finished third and fourth in the Cy Young Award. I want people at home to hear uh, uh, El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, his brother, LeVon Hernandez, who's made some news before that. Did he establish himself with the Marlins? He won the World Series MVP with the Marlins. uh, I covered that World Series. I should know that. And then I heard his brother's better. I'm like, his brother's better? And he was. Listen to this. Cut 36. Arriba El Duque. And there is a look at Orlando Hernandez. And as they were playing the national anthem, Kenny, I wondered what is going through his mind from the journey that he has taken from that boat in his escape from Cuba. What an experience. One hopper back to the mound. Going to be an easy inning here in the seventh. One, two, three for El Duque. Nothing to cross for the Devil Rays. Listen to the ovation. So they're happy to have him. He had a sense it was something happening. So, um... For you personally, you live the Yankees. You work for the Yankees now. This was a team you had to go back and study. Oh, well, was that an enjoyable thing? Did you find a bunch of players that wanted to talk to you, a manager that was going to be cooperative? Couldn't talk to Steinbrenner, obviously. But what was it like going back? Willing subjects? I, I loved it, Brian. For me, this was right in my wheelhouse. And when my editor, Sean Desmond of uh, Hachette Books, Grand Central Publishing, said, do you want to do this book? I said, absolutely. Oh, he came up to you with the idea? He, his, it was his idea after the Conan O'Neill books that I did. It's the 25th anniversary. Publishers love anniversaries. And people were very receptive. I was able to contact virtually every player. Tory gave me a lot of time. Cashman gave me a lot of time. Jeter, who isn't always the easiest guy to track down, gave me a lot of time. But did he give you anything? Jeter never gives you anything. Jeter's quotes in this book, if you read them, 
to me, they were Jeter opening up more because Jeter would never have said in 98 we wanted to pummel teams. Jeter calls them the greatest team ever. He would never have said that in 98. So I think we got a, a freer, more liberated version of Jeter. When did uh, Knobloch start with the, the yips at second? That started post-98, so I don't include that in this book. But he did have the uh, defensive gaffe in game two of the ALCS where on a bunt play the ball squirted free and he did not and- chase the ball. Here's how it sounded. Yes. Cut 38. Ryman squares the bunt and gets it down nicely. Martinez with the flip to first. Safe. Now the Yankees are going to contend as the ball rolls away. And Wilson's being laid home. He stumbles. They may have a play on him. He slides in safely. All the way to third goes Fryman. The Yankees are going to contend that Fryman was in the baseline or out of the baseline and got in the way of the throw. But it was a very poor play to let that ball roll down there while you wait for an umpire to make a decision. You have to go after the ball. You can't let the ball roll 10 feet down the right field line and no one go pick it up. Joe Morgan would know. Second base. Hall of Fame second baseman right on Game it. Game two ALCS. Bob Costas, Hall of Fame announcer, right on it. What was interesting about that, Brian, is after the game, Knobloch was somewhat defiant and was saying that was obstruction, that was interference, that's what I was trying to alert the umpire to, whereas every little leaguer knows you have to go chase the ball. Cone had a conversation with him on the flight to Cleveland and said, listen, this is going to hover over you until you just own it. Do a press conference, just own it. 25 years later, when I talked to Knobloch about this, he admitted that that night was hell for him. And that he was worried about being the next Bill Buckner. And the Yankees wow. lose game three as well. So now they're down two to one. El Duque saves the Yankees and, and Knobloch in game four. And I did go to the San Diego Padres World Series. It was just a route for the Yankees. I remember Cohn sitting in the dugout by himself watching mm. everybody party. And I'm wondering why. Is he leaving? I don't know if he – because at this point in his career, he was almost done, right? Uh, he pitched until 2001, but yeah, 98 was a 20-win season for him. So that was a that was a banner year. Yeah, it depends. I never got to that point where I had a choice of how to celebrate championships. Yes. <laughs> Jack Curry's here. His book is now out. The 1998 Yankees. Uh, back with a, a little bit more right after this. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is truly, you can say it now, one of the greatest teams in baseball. This team, this team, I, I've never seen anything like it. They just never quit. It didn't make, they seem to be able to overcome everything. It was an emotional team. Joe did a great job. He and the players deserve all the credit. I don't, I've never heard that. That's George Steinbrenner, the toughest man you'll ever play for, never satisfied. Jack Curry here, his book, uh, The 1998 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever. Talk about that. He was incredibly emotional in the clubhouse, Brian. The way I described it in the book was 90% emotions, 10% the sting of the champagne was causing him to cry. But I think it all flooded forward. When I think of that clubhouse scene, Brian, it was a mixture of celebration and absolute relief. Because you can't win 114 games and then lose the World Series because you're forgotten. So if you want to validate your regular season, you'd better win the World Series. And the Yankees, they rampaged through the World Series after that one hiccup in Cleveland. But this he was satisfied, wasn't he? I mean, can you imagine George Steinbrenner satisfied? 
He was he was thrilled in that moment. He was absolutely thrilled. They wanted him thrilled. more than the, than George Steinbrenner. George, George always did, and George wanted always wanted to be around the team in the postseason. He was a very heavy presence around the team in the postseason. I remember him when they lost in Cleveland, sitting in the trainer's room after Game Three. Cleveland of all teams, right? And he his home, his area, almost where he bought grew the up. Indians. Yes, and he just looked sad. And he said, "We'll see what we're made of tomorrow." He went and gave El Duque a little pep talk, and El Duque said. Uh, Manana, no problema. Like, oh, Dilke was just ready to go. Like, I got it. I got us. Lastly, this team misses Steinbrenner. There's almost a team with as much talent as they are. They don't seem, they seemed, according to critics, content with being okay or not winning at all. Or do you feel that's inadequate? Brian Cashman was the general manager his first year in 98. He's still the general manager now. In his 25 seasons as general manager, they've made the postseason 22 times. So there's a lot of success there. What's hanging over them right now, Brian, is they haven't won a title since 09. And that's felt by the fan base. That's felt in the Yankee offices. They look at 2017 when the Astros, everyone now knows, were cheating. And that's something the Yankees wish they had back. But, yeah, they, Steinbrenner's mandate was to win. So when you don't win, you, you haven't fulfilled his mandate. Come on, Hal. And uh, everyone, pick up this book. Even if not a Yankee fan, you'll love it. It's called Perfection, the 1998 Yankees. Jack Curry, thank you. Thanks, Brian. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.